This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. It's another week from hell, almost literally in many parts of the country. Last week, we talked about the toll the hot weather takes on the human body, how it turns deadly for people without access to air conditioning. This week, we're going to talk about another casualty of extreme heat, the health of our infrastructure. We're talking the power grid in Texas, taxed to the max, trying to keep life-saving AC on, roads and train tracks buckling under this summer's inferno. We've watched runways melt in the UK, not to mention the heartbreaking floods overwhelming human attempts to contain them. So can we prevent infrastructure from failing and endangering lives as conditions change? And how do we build for an uncertain climate change future? With me to talk about this is Dr. Mikhail Chester, a professor of civil, environmental, and sustainable engineering at Arizona State University in Tempe. Welcome to the program. Greetings, Ira. Great to be on with you. You know, I just mentioned some examples of infrastructure problems we've seen in the extreme heat recently, but can you explain on a physical level why a power grid has a harder time in hot weather? I mean, it's not just that everyone has the AC on, is it? That's right. So when you think about the relationships between infrastructure and their environments, there are normative choices that are made about how much environmental exposure or environmental extreme events in a particular asset or a larger system can be able to tolerate, withstand, um, you know, any of those words I think are reasonable. So in the case of power systems, you can think of a power system as a giant heat management set of technologies. So for example, as uh, we generate electricity and thermoelectric power plants like nuclear, coal, um, you're managing heat, um, you're transferring energy around in the form of heat. When you're talking about something like power lines, you have electricity that's flowing through them and that electricity is generating heat uh, and that heat has to go somewhere. And we have engineered assets in our systems, for example, power lines to be able to give off heat fast enough, for example, under certain conditions. If those conditions change, for example, uh, at the peak of the summer or if temperatures continue to rise, we have a, a, a heat wave, then the line in this case would not be able to give off heat fast enough. So at that point, several things might happen. Um, the line is warming up. Uh, it might uh, expand or sag. In the case of a power line, we might be concerned about it coming into contact with a tree. Or what might happen is uh, recognizing that temperatures are at their uh, highest and exceeding what the system is designed for, uh, engineers might make decisions about actually uh, reducing the flow of, in this case, electricity through the power line so that it stays within its safe operating conditions. And the reduction of that electricity at a time when a lot of people are demanding more and more electricity for, in this case, air conditioning, can be problematic. So, you know, at a material level, there's a number of things going on in terms of how we've designed the infrastructure. And then there's also the operations of that infrastructure, all of these things come into play when infrastructure are confronted by extreme events. You know, that's really interesting explanation because I don't think most people understood why the power is, is cut back, right? Just when you need it most, it's to, it's to save the power lines. Yeah, that's right. And, 
if you look at when historically we've had major outages of, in this case, the power system, not coincidentally, it happens at the peak of the summer. For example, the 2003 Northeast uh, blackout in the U.S. happens uh, right in the middle of August, happens sort of at the worst time. And the reason for this is because that's where you've pushed the system to its capacity. There's no fat in the system, so to speak. So as soon as something goes offline or multiple components go offline or um, you know, climate change pushes the extreme even further beyond what the system was designed for, then you start to have serious problems. That's really interesting. And of course, that goes on. We're talking metal, right? The power lines are made out of metal. You have the railroad tracks that, just like the power lines, they expand, but they have no place to go. So they buckle. That's right. You're starting to see lots of stories emerge in places like the UK and even uh, northern regions of the US that are being hit by this heat wave where you're seeing issues around track buckling. And um, again, it's sort of a similar narrative. Uh, the tracks uh, are, of course, designed for heavy heat periods. But as we see extreme heat events become that much more severe or even prolonged, you know, we're starting to exceed what those particular systems were designed for. In the case of rail, an interesting dynamic that we're seeing emerge is even if the tracks have not buckled, train operators are often told to slow down because simply there's a risk of buckling. So even if the tracks themselves have not buckled, the train schedules are disrupted. And of course, people who rely on uh, you know, mass transit in that case are, are going to be impacted. The heat isn't the only issue climate change is, is exacerbating. We just saw historic devastating floods in Kentucky and Missouri. We've had dozens of people die in New Jersey and New York last fall when the remnants of Hurricane Ida dropped rain at like at a rate of three inches per hour. And, and one of the problems here is that we have stormwater systems that can't handle it. They're not made to handle this, this kind of flow, correct? In many cases, that's indeed correct. And this goes back to how we design. And I think it's important to recognize sort of the challenges of how we've been designing infrastructure through present day relative to the challenges of how we need to design infrastructure for an uncertain climate future. So in the case of water, we often are designing around historical data that tells us how much precipitation or water has passed through a particular area. You might size a stormwater pipe underneath a road, given the historical data that has been collected for your particular region. So an engineer does this all the time. If we then recognize that climate change is creating conditions that are in many cases, in many places, producing more extreme precipitation events and more extreme flooding, but also the challenge of uncertainty associated with how bad climate change might get, the combination of those two puts us in a challenging position. Um, we don't quite know how big to make the pipe under the road. We can't necessarily afford it. And we're not quite sure how extreme these conditions are going to be, say, you know, 30, 50, 100 years from now. Right. You know, I'm almost having a deja vu all over again moment here because I've been following these issues for so many decades. And it always seems to me that we already know everything we need to make the roads and the power grids and the stormwater systems 
more resilient to changing climate. And it doesn't seem like we need to, to, to invent anything really new. At some scale of the problem, when we talk about how do we harden or strengthen or even armor a particular asset, we absolutely know how to do that. If you are a, a stormwater engineer, for example, in a city in the U.S., and you know somebody says to you, the forecasts or the climate models are showing that uh, precipitation is going to be 10% worse or 20% worse, the engineer will know in that situation how to size their pipe appropriately for that condition. At the other scale of the problem, when you put all of the assets together across a country as large as the United States or many other countries in the world, there we have you know, cities, states, a nation that have legacy infrastructure that are massive in scale. They go everywhere in the state or you know, there's just lots of roads, lots of power lines, lots of water pipes and so on. And if we then say we have to rehabilitate all of that, we have to make all of that stronger, then we have a problem. We, there's severe limitations to do that, not simply uh, financial. They might be political. There might be nimbyism. There might be technological limitations. You know, how big should that levy be? Um, you know, we may not be able to build it as big as that worst case climate uh, model forecast shows. Mm -hmm. So there we have, you know, a different mentality that needs to kick in to sort of deal with this challenge of we simply aren't going to rehabilitate everything fast enough. Mm -hmm. So give me some concrete ideas, no, no pun intended, of, of, of vision of what we need to do now and a, and a pathway to getting a more resilient system. The first is that where we can armor, strengthen, and harden our assets, we should do that. However, also recognizing the kind of limitations that, that I provided. So next, what I would recommend is a number of strategies that embrace the uncertainty of climate change and the reality of our inability to rehabilitate all of this infrastructure. So one strategy that we often think about is what's called safe to fail. And this is the idea that infrastructure have so far over the past century, let's say, largely been designed as fail safe. We don't want them to fail. When they do, it generally becomes somebody else's problem, like uh, FEMA, for example. Safe to fail is this idea that we allow, at some point, the environment to come in, recognizing that that's going to create disruptions. We need to manage those disruptions or be prepared to manage those disruptions proactively. Give me, give me an example. Give me an example of that. Uh, in the Netherlands, for example, uh, there is the Room for the River project. So uh, the Netherlands is uh, fairly low-lying across most of the country. And uh, with sea level rise uh, and storm surges, there was serious coastal flooding and inland flooding, riverine flooding risk. The Netherlands for a long time were building levees, trying to hold it back, but couldn't keep up with the changing conditions that they had to respond to. So they decided to change their approach and allow room for the river, for uh, riverine flooding. They essentially gave space for the river to flood. And they said, um, farmers, you're allowed to plant crops in this flood-prone region. If you do so, every so often, there's a high risk that your crops are gonna flood. As such, we're gonna reimburse you for those crops. And the cost of reimbursing you when they're lost is far less than the cost of building bigger and bigger levees, maintaining them in perpetuity. 
Other strategies might include um, green infrastructure that, for example, might attenuate flooding. Uh, so if we, uh, instead of trying to hold back that flooding with, you know, for example, concrete walls or levees, we might allow that flooding to come in, but provide a barrier that is green flood, uh, green infrastructure, excuse me, that would uh, absorb some of that flood, absorb some of the energy of that flood, and uh, ultimately um, provide some attenuation of the impact as it comes through. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios, talking to Dr. Mikhail Chester about how we engineer infrastructure for climate change. Can you do something similar with, let's say, heat waves? Can you really let the heat in, in a controlled manner, without hurting human health or infrastructure? A lot of the discourse around heat focuses on rehabilitation of buildings for air conditioning. What's particularly concerning is not necessarily places like Phoenix, where you know virtually all buildings have some form of air conditioning, but instead places in the North that simply have building stock that hasn't needed air conditioning and therefore doesn't have all that much air conditioning. The problem is that if you're trying to, again, hold back the environment, in this case heat, by deploying air conditioning everywhere, you have an energy problem, right? right. Uh, the, the footprint of that energy might be absolutely massive and you simply you know, can't deploy enough energy generating technologies to keep up with that. There are you know, lots of great examples of letting the heat in. And I'm not saying that this is always what we want to do, but uh, I live down the road from uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's uh, Taliesin West campus, which does not have air conditioning. And, uh, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright designed in innovative passive cooling designs into the buildings, strategic placement of, of windows, uh, even construction of a neighborhood and the placement of buildings and how they're integrated with green infrastructure, for example, trees, shading, grass, and so on can have huge impacts on the overall temperature experienced uh, by that community. So there are ways in which you can allow the heat in, although, you know, we have to be careful about, you know, when we're going to do that, where we're going to do that, and, you know, how we protect those who are most vulnerable. Right, right. Now, one last thing, because this is, to me, the obvious question is, Who's going to pay for this? Are we going to be watching these as local projects, one city, one county, one state, taking these this project or the, the, the required changes on by themselves? Or are we going to wait for the federal government like, you know, they built the interstate highway uh, thanks to General Eisenhower in Europe? Uh, are we going to see it that way? Or how do you see this all playing out? Somebody will pay for this, and I don't have an answer of you know who that's going to be. What I can say is that you know again evidence uh, continues to to accumulate that the costs of being proactive and maybe um, building in resilience earlier is going to be far less than the costs of waiting until these systems fail and paying for not only the infrastructure rehabilitation at that point, but also absorbing the economic damages that come along with it, which often are, you know, several orders of magnitude larger than the cost of rebuilding the infrastructure. To an engineer in the field, 
the issue of climate change and infrastructure is in some ways apolitical. Um, you know, if I'm tasked with building a stormwater pipe under the road that can handle a certain amount of precipitation at the most extreme, and my job is to prevent my community from flooding, I simply at this point can no longer ignore climate change. Uh, it's already playing out to some extent. And, you know, the evidence is, is there in front of me that it's probably going to get worse in my community. I simply have to absorb that information and make those decisions. And in our work, we continue to in, uh, interact with engineers who are looking for answers, who are looking for help, who are looking for the resources to make sure that our infrastructure stay reliable. Not only that, but our communities and our, uh, our nation thrive under this climate impacted future. But let's hope that the politicians listen a little bit more to the engineers. I concur. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sure you, do. you you will. Thank you very much for taking time to be with us today. Thanks so much, Ira. Dr. Mikhail Chester, Professor of Civil, Environmental, and Sustainable Engineering at Arizona State University in Tempe.